This is the Leadership Institute School Board Campaign Training Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Nearing. This year, the Leadership Institute launched this new program for conservatives interested in running for school board or being involved in school board campaigns. Our podcast features faculty members from the new school board campaign training and other expert guests discussing how to design, wage, and win successful school board campaigns. You can learn more and take the program online at leadershipinstitute.org slash school board. Today, my guest is Rick Tyler, longtime conservative strategist and the author of Still Right. Rick can be frequently found providing insight and current news and events on cable news. Rick, welcome to the program. Ron, it's great to be with you. Rick, would you share with our listeners a little bit about your background, what brings you to the conservative movement and politics, and what's been your involvement in uh, in political campaigns, both nationally and, and down at the local level? Well, I, I actually started my political campaign in a sort of a strange, unique way. I was asked to run a gubernatorial campaign, like right out of the box. I, I had never worked on a single campaign ever. And and it came about because I, I was actually working in a restaurant and one of my waitress's mother happened to be the Senate minority leader in Maine. And she had decided she wanted to run for governor. And we got to know each other. And then she asked if I would run her campaign. Now, if I were sophisticated, Ron, I would I would have translated that as she can't get good qualified help. (laughs) (laughs) But I wasn't. But I also told I also said, no, I'm not going to do that because I don't know anything about running campaigns. And as it turned out, she said, well, will you volunteer for my campaign? And I said, well, of course. So within a few weeks, I was the campaign manager because there was no campaign manager. And then I realized I really needed some help. And I've got to figure out I got to unravel this whole mystery of running running for office. I literally knew nothing about it. And so I, I called a, f- a family friend of mine um, whose name is Fritz Wrench, and he was the secretary for the Heritage Foundation for a very, very long time. In fact, he wrote the business plan for Paul Weirich um, at the Heritage Foundation. And I said, Fritz, I'm, I'm running this campaign for governor. And he said, well, that's impossible. <laughs> and I said, uh, <laughs> I know, Fritz, but are you going to help me? <laughs> and he said, well, Paul, referring to Paul Weirich, has a school next week. Um, and maybe uh, let me make a call and see if I can get you in it. And he made a call. And the next thing I know, I'm driving to Washington and I'm taking a week-long, seven-day intensive campaign management school course at the Free Congress Foundation, which is on the Senate side of the Capitol, if you know Washington, D.C., and I learned so much that week, but the thing that I learned the most, or the thing that I, that the most important thing I learned, let me say, was that we were going to lose. <laughs> 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 because what I had discovered is all of these things that we should have been doing, you know, for weeks and months, we weren't doing any of them. And so it was a hard lesson. And, you know, so I ran a camp, a gubernatorial campaign, you know, into the ground and, um, that actually resulted in my candidate as a consolation prize. She was offered the chairmanship of the Maine Republican Party. And in turn, I became the executive director, which, again, I really didn't have any business doing. Um, again, I called Fritz and said, I'm the executive director of the Maine Republican Party. He said, that's impossible. <laughs> I said, I know Fritz, but will you help me? <laughs> it's very humbling calling this Fritz guy. <laughs> and he did. He did help me a great deal. And I, I learned a lot. And I, and I was actually the director for an inordinate amount of time for as directors go. I, I lived through um, two chair, three chairmen from the time I was hired. Um, and I got so cocky by the last chairman actually openly ran a campaign against her and we lost by two votes. Now she had been running for two years and my candidate had been running for two weeks. But, um, it, you know, during that time, it, the thing is about losing Ron is when you lose, you learn a lot. You learn a lot more than when you win. Much more so. And the reason is, Politics, like in the media, it's always looking forward. It's there's it just is focused on the future. It's very rarely focused on the past. So when you win, you know you, you're now you have power and you got to set up an, an office, whatever it is you want. And you want to do a good job, and so you're focused forward. And there really is not a lot of time to reflect back. But when you lose, there's lots of time to reflect back <laughs> because this is a going out of business business, right? And so it's not for the faint of heart. Like if you love stability, um, politics might not. Be your chosen profession because we have this big going out of business sale the first Tuesday of every year, sometimes every other year. 
and uh, you're going to be out of a job and you're going to be doing something um, quite different. And so when I lost, I decided in addition to the campaign school that I would learn as much as I could about how do campaigns operate and function, how to be an effective operative in a campaign. And so I basically learned everything I could about it. That resulted in me uh, taking a leadership role over, over then Newt Gingrich's GoPack. And I taught uh, classes all around the country. And, and I think in 2011, I started teaching at the Leadership Institute. And then most recently with you, in several years, we've been all over the world together teaching uh, people about freedom and, and democracies and, and how to win in uh, a free and fair elections. So, so it's been quite a run. Well, we're delighted to have you as part of the faculty here at the Leadership Institute doing a great job. We're recording this uh, podcast on the fourth floor of our Leadership Institute building in Arlington, Virginia, in our podcast studio here on the, on the same floor. We have two television studios, which we use to conduct a, a variety of media training programs. You can learn more about those programs at leadershipinstitute.org slash training. And uh, the overwhelming majority of our faculty members are volunteers. Uh, they're conservatives like Rick who have backgrounds, uh, and they're con committed to the mission both of the, of the Leadership Institute specifically and to the, the cause of the broader conservative movement. And we're so fortunate to have people like Rick uh, joining us uh, uh, to be part of this podcast as well as part of the school board campaign training program. Uh, today, the, the main topic we wanted to go into today is winning the, quote, invisible primaries. And this, is, this podcast is part of a series for school board candidates and those interested in running for school board and helping those who, uh, who uh, are getting involved in school board campaigns. And we're, we're sharing on the podcast components of the training uh, and uh, so that people can can get it this way in their car or while while they're doing other things. Uh, but we'll, of course, we encourage everyone to sign up at leadershipinstitute.org/schoolboard for the full online program, uh, where you'll see uh, fifteen plus presentations on every aspect of running a campaign. But we're going to talk today about uh, winning the invisible primaries. This is an important part of being a candidate. I've been a candidate and have very much followed. Uh, this uh, this formula, and there there is election day. There's the contest on election day, but then there are a couple of contests before election day that have to be won before election day, so that candidates are in a strong position to do well uh, when voters are actually making the decision about uh, for, for whom they wish to vote. Uh, so this these are the contests before the contest, and they are starting with substance. And this refers to candidates need to become, be seen as a substantive leader with substantive ideas. Rick, tell us a little bit about this, about the importance and how a candidate goes about establishing that they're a substantive person and that many of the people listening might be first-time candidates or they're helping a first-time candidate. They might be completely unknown or relatively unknown in the community. How does a candidate go about establishing themselves as a substantive leader, uh, and why is that so important? Well, when people want to vote for somebody, they, they basically have in their mind, I want to vote for someone who would do what I would do if, if I had that position of authority. And what the candidate has to do, it, substance, you can substitute the word um, credibility. You have to build a credibility. Now, credibility... And substance are actually built in, in three different ways or a mixture of the three ways and, and maybe one over the other. And it goes back to the Greek, which is ethos, logos, and pathos. Ethos is basically your resume. Like, what have I done in my life? Have I run a small business successfully? Am I a great manager? Um, um, did I create something unique? Anything you can translate that's in your resume to the job that you're running for will give you credibility. And, and it's up to you. You can't allow people to assume that you suddenly have all this credibility to, to uh, take on this role. You have to translate for the voter, because I did these things, I am well suited to have this position. It's right, it's right up my, my alley. So it's not only a matter of what the candidate believes in, which I think a lot of people who get fired up over issues tend to focus on that. 
But it's more than that because a candidate is not just a, uh, a list of issue positions. They are a person and, with judgment and Correct. the ability to act or not act. And so that's really what this is about, right? Essentially, people vote for people. Yes, issues are important, uh, but most time they're really looking at the candidate who embodies the issues. So uh, ethos would be your credibility, their credibility in terms of your resume and what you've done in your experience. It's no, voters are hiring someone for a job, so it's no different than presenting your job qualifications for a job. And so this is sort of your inter interview. But it's also uh, logos, which is the logic of you know, what you've done and how it applies, how, you know, but most people aren't very logical. They're mostly, they, they vote often on ethos, which is emotion. Like, how does this person make me feel? Do I, do I feel, do I feel good about this candidate or do I not? And that, that go, speaks to oftentimes likability or, or unlikability of a candidate. A can, it's much easier to vote for somebody and to listen to somebody who we like very hard to listen to somebody or vote for someone we don't like. So it's a combination of emotion, the logic, and your credibility. And you have to weave a story, a narrative about yourself to convince people that you, A, have the experience for this job, two, that it's logical what you're saying about, and this would speak to issues. So you walk through people through the logic of issues and why you take positions on different issues because they have a train of logic, and we can talk about that. Uh, and then emotion. It's like I really, I really like this person. They, gee, you know, they have children too in the school system, right? They care about their children. Um, certainly, they would like my children to experience a have a good education as as well as their children. So it's all of these combinations with emphasis, depending on on who you are, your personality, and and the electorate um, that weaves this narrative in which one you will focus on more. I suggest you focus on all of them, but will you focus more on the emotion side of your campaign, the logic side of your campaign? If you don't have a great resume that would naturally fit uh, an office like school board that you're running for, you might focus on other things. You wouldn't focus on your, your resume. You would focus on, on the issues that you want to take up, and you would focus on people making a decision about you from an emotional standpoint of view. So likable, substantive person who's done some things that are relevant to the office that they're seeking and some substantive issue positions uh, that are relative to running for school board that directly concern the schools uh, are part of being a strong candidate for, for school board then. Yes, but overall, a candidate has to have a vision for what it is if I get elected, what will it be like? Like, how will the, how will things change for the better? Um, you have to be able to articulate that, particularly if you're a challenger, because when you're a challenger, you are challenging the status quo. You're challenging the other candidates uh, on the ballot, and they want to juxtapose your vision for what a successful school board member would be and what a success, successful school board's agenda would be compared to their own. If people in order to make a choice, well, let's get back to what, what is an election. Election is one thing. It's a choice. Voters are asked to choose between candidate A or candidate B, and sometimes there's multiple candidates, but they're actually, they have to make a choice. Even not voting is a choice. So what do you have to have for a choice? You have to have a contrast. You have to have what is the difference between these two candidates? Because if you're the challenger and you cannot present a contrast to the voter of why the incumbent. Remember, you're asking the voters to fire the incumbent. That's what you're asking them to do, to take away their job. Now imagine in your private life, in your private work, imagine there was someone dedicated every single day to getting you fired. That's the nature of politics. And in order for voters to actually do that, they've got to be given a choice. They have to be given that this candidate and their vision is better than the other. If you do not provide that, um, you will lose. So that vision for the schools, for the community, has to be aspirational. It has to be better than things are today. Otherwise, why should I bother electing this new person if things are just fine? Uh, and also achievable, attainable in some way so that it's credible. And that gets back to your resume. Right? So having a vision for the schools, 
how will they be better and in what way? And then being able to paint that image, create that image in the minds of the voters and to make that something which is appealing and seen as achievable through the election of our, our preferred candidate. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and um, it, it is in, in that we're developing a narrative about the substance of our candidacy. And that's what we need to communicate uh, to voters every single day. Vision, uh, contrast, and how will I construct my personal bio to make myself an appealing, attractive candidate for the position I'm asking voters to choose. And we're going to talk in a subsequent uh, podcast episode about the various phases of voter contact. And this is something which we focus on very early in the campaign, establishing who the candidate is and why they are, uh, why they are substantive, what substance they bring to the table. What are some things which someone could point to uh, that, uh, that contribute to this? Uh, and uh, it seems to me that uh, you'll have plenty of people who are running for school board for the first time, so they can't necessarily point to something that they've done with the schools because uh, maybe they have a background with the PTA or something, but maybe they don't. So what are some things that a candidate can point to to underscore the fact that they are a substantive uh, candidate for this office? Well, you mentioned PTA and PTO, so those are certainly one one thing. Uh, Having children uh, grow up in in a public school system certainly is an attribute. It's not a requisite, but it is an an attribute because you'll be able to talk about your kids going through the same school. I think one of the things that you want a candidate to get across is they love the public school system. And and it's it's not a terrible, evil thing. Maybe there's things you don't like about how the school system is being run, and that's what you want to change. But it's because you love edu- the education process. It's because you believe that every uh, student deserves a quality education, which will lead to potentially college, but for others, vocational school, um, so that they can go off in the world and, and compete for the jobs of the next generation. This reminds me of a common mistake that conservatives will make in my own state of California, where I live, and that is that California, of course, is a wonderful example of how liberal ideas can uh, you know, can, can get in the way of people's quality of life. Prove the negative, right? <laughs> m- m- many of us are very familiar with, you know, California has among the highest taxes in the country. We, have, we also have the highest poverty rate in the country. Uh, those two facts are not unrelated. We just lost a congressional district, which right. speaks to why people are That's not right. moving we have there. To, we have uh, 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 net negative out-migration, out many people leaving the state. And it's got to be pretty stressful in California if people are willing to leave the natural beauty of California, the Pacific, and so on, and move into the barren, desolate desert of of Arizona uh, and Nevada, which are are among uh, the most common destinations for Californians. But when conservatives run for office in California, if you come across inarticulately and you are constantly attacking the state as opposed to f- focusing the criticism on the state government, then it sounds like you're running against California and no one's going to hire you to lead something that you hate. So it's drawing that distinction between California state government, which is run by folks on the left who are not doing a very good job, as opposed to run- running against the entire state of California, which, by the way, is terrific. And the people of California are terrific and highly industrious, and they're putting up with a lot. And uh, and they're, they have the same concerns uh, as other folks do in terms of wanting to have good schools and good roads and be able to make, uh, make a living and so on. So I think it's so important that when candidates are making a case against the status quo, that the, we, we need candidates to be very articulate in terms of if they're being critical, what exactly are they criticizing? Are they and failure to do this can come across as criticizing something that you're not. Uh, and Frank Luntz so often says that uh, that it's not what you say; it's what other people hear. So the candidate might think that they're saying something, but what other people are hearing is something else because they're coming at it from a different context. And so the onus then is always on the speaker. If the audience does not understand what it is you're trying to say never blame the audience. It's not the voter's fault. It's not the audience's fault. It's the communicator's fault. It's incumbent upon the communicator, the candidate, to be sure that they're correctly identifying what is it that they're trying to say, who is it being directed at, and so on. That's right. 
all communication occurs in the mind of the listener. Because everybody, even people who are hearing me right now, are testing what I'm saying against their own personal experience. So they're thinking to themselves, well, that's, that's got to be right. I know someone exactly like that. Or that happened to me. Or that happened to my friend or my father. Uh, and others are saying, well, that's exactly wrong because that, that didn't happen to me or that didn't happen to my – right? So this is – so people are uh, – they are – communication is filtered through their own personal experience. Everybody has a different experience. Therefore, everybody hears my words just a little differently. And they process them differently from their own experience and their own philosophy, their own – their own mindset. Um, and I think Republicans, well, let me let me start with a defense. And that is, for conservatives, we have a particular burden because our philosophy is rooted in individual, individual freedom. And we believe that government, while government is necessary, um, it is not the center point of solving everyone's problems. We, we, we like to look to the private sector um, or, or, or charities um, to address many of our social ills first. That doesn't mean that we're anti-government. And I think conservatives make a huge mistake by coming across as anti-government. It's okay to be pro-government as long as you're pro-limited government and that government stays within the confines of its delineation, which you can find in the Constitution. That's the way we see it. Progressives see it very differently. They see government as a, as a force for good. Teddy Roosevelt was actually a progressive. He saw government as a force for good. Progressivism takes a very negative turn uh, back in the 1920s. And it's an, actually an interesting story because FDR, when he began to, to contemplate running for president, he was actually following the example of his, his uh, cousin, Teddy. He was also a progressive, but progressive had taken on eugenics and a lot of terrible things happened under the progressive movement. And so Roosevelt was faced with a problem. One was Teddy was a Republican. He was a Democrat. He was not going to run as a Republican. He could run as a Democrat. But he couldn't run as a progressive because the, the, the word progressive had taken on such a negative connotation. And so what he does is something quite clever, which is he creates a list of, of issues and an agenda, which he runs on which were very similar to the contract with America, which happened under Newt Gingrich in 1994. And so he has this list of issues and he puts them out to the voter. And he calls the issues liberal. Now, at that time, at, at that time, um, liberal was the word that was associated with conservatives. We were called the liberal party. In fact, as you know, Ron, you work all around the world and you know the liberal party does does is not the same as the conservatives in the United States, right? Because liberal, liberal, and we used to have that same moniker. And then what happened was FDR grabs that moniker of liberal, liberal liberty, liberty implying open freedom and freedom. Uh, in fact, the conservative quote conservative party in Australia is the liberal party. That's correct, and and so it confuses a lot of people. But that's because the FDR he stole the label, and the conservatives went along with it and said, "Well, if he's going to be a liberal, then we'll be conservatives," and it's stuck. And that's that's kind of where we are. And that's <laughs> where we've been um, uh, ever since. The burden that conservatives have in terms of issues is the left can always point to government, a government program. Right. And the media is sort of pre-wired to say, OK, the, the, the Democrats have a government program to solve this problem. What is the Republican government plan to solve this problem? And in fact, there may not be a government plan to solve the problem. I think healthcare is probably one of the base, biggest examples. And what happened during the whole Obamacare, in which we still have Obamacare, is because the Democrats presented this huge Obamacare program. And the conservatives, the Republicans, were painted as not having any program, um, which to some degree was quite true. Because even if they had a private sector program, that was not articulated to the public. So it's 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 just a disadvantage that we have to understand and, and to deal with is we may not have a private sector uh, – I'm sorry, a, a government sector solution. We have a private sector solution, and then we have to contrast those together. Public education, on the other hand, is a government-run program. And so when we're asking people to run for school board, 
we are talking within the context of functions that we as a society have agreed upon the government should run. Um, even if you, even if we can argue about uh, different aspects of, of, of private school, but public schools are fact, right? So we don't argue against facts. It's a, it's a fact, and they should be well run. So we need uh, good conservative uh, school board members to make sure that the other side, because remember, this is a competition of ideas, and we need conservatives to get on school boards uh, to articulate their ideas. And it can't, the ideas, and it's hard to get elected when your ideas are just seemingly attacking uh, the institution, the, the, the fine people who work in schools, particularly teachers. You should never attack teachers. And how are we going to make it function the way we want it? What's our vision for having it function? And juxtapose that against the vision uh, that the left has. You covered a lot of ground there, but one thing that, that I think is of particular importance and should be emphasized is the importance of defining, number one, defining yourself as opposed to being defined by your opponent. Uh, and when candidates fail to define themselves, they create a vacuum that your opponent in a, credible, uh, in a competitive election is more than happy to fill. If you don't want to define the reasons why you're running for office, why you hold a position that you do, your opponent will be happy to do that for you. And of course, do that in the way that causes the most damage to your own uh, candidacy. But related to that is needing to define yourself by what you are for, not only by what you are against. And I think part of the, the what you mentioned uh, Obamacare, which Republicans ran against for a decade and never succeeded in fully repealing, in part because there was a, there was unanimity on the Republican side uh, behind or near unanimity in terms of repealing Obamacare, but what to replace it with was never fully articulated. And uh, and so that was a missed opportunity. And if uh, and so Republicans were very successful in winning many elected offices by running against Obamacare. Uh, but by failing to articulate that alternative, there was never a mandate for its replacement. And that's why uh, ultimately those efforts to replace it failed. And likewise, school board candidates need to need to define what they are for. What is your vision for the schools? What is your vision for? providing children with the world-class education that they deserve. How do we go about doing that? It doesn't mean you get lost in the weeds, but in the big picture on that vision level, it's important for candidates to identify and articulate what they are for, not only what they are against. Because eventually, if you only define yourself by what you're against, that argument eventually runs out of gas, and that may run out of gas before you get to the finish line. Let me talk about that because people will often get confused about what you said is exactly right. Voters need to know what you're for. They do need to know what you're against. And I want to make a distinction between, because many will say, oh, you're just negative campaigning. In the voter's mind, uh, negative campaigning is quite different from useful information to help me make a decision. So that is, if the school board member you know, did, voted 14 times um, against, I, I don't know, what would a school board member vote against 14 times that people wouldn't like? Um, I want to use the word taxes, but they don't seem to raise tax. But let's say they, let's say they voted, uh, you know, for for pay raises or a particular curriculum or some way the school is managed, et cetera, over and over again. And you point that out is that's this, that's the current school board's record. That's not negative advertising. That's not negative campaigning. That's simply pointing out the opponent's record. And it's up to them to clarify it or put a new spin on it or whatever, whatever have you. So don't, when I say, when we say, I guess when you and I are saying provide contrast, but, but don't um, just be against everything, it's okay to point out the, the contrast and the things that you don't like that the current school board members have. But you have to weigh that or balance that out with, okay, the voters don't like it either. That's terrific. What do they like? And you must talk right. about that as well. Right. So candidates need to win this invisible contest of substance and be seen relatively early on relative to election day. In other words, they can't wait until election day to be seen as substantive person with substantive ideas. The set, There's a second important invisible primary. Let's talk a little bit about that. And that is uh, building the fan club, building a support base, uh, and uh, you know, I've, 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 there's one candidate I follow on uh, on social media, who's who shall remain nameless at the moment, 
but uh, he's running for office in California. And in every single picture that his team posts on social media, he is standing alone. And this sends a powerful message. It's a terrible idea. Just yesterday, the White House showing that the Biden communications team is not as good as the Obama communications team was. They posted a picture of of Joe Biden sitting in the situation room or not situation room, but uh, but a briefing room at the White House doing a video conference about what's happening in Afghanistan. Uh, And uh, and it's Joe Biden alone at the table. Uh, looking at a screen with about six or eight uh, people in the military and so on uh, up on the screen. And the focus of the picture is the table. And you can't help but realize, but, but, uh, uh, but uh, th- that picture conveys Joe Biden uh, is alone. He was wearing a polo shirt at a time when Americans are literally being chased out of Afghanistan. Instead of the bomber jacket. <laughs> uh, and it, it doesn't exactly look, uh, look like it's being taken seriously. It's just a terrible picture. But the most powerful part of that picture is he is, sta- he is sitting there alone. And this candidate, this California candidate I'm thinking of, is always standing alone in his pictures. And this sends a terrible message to those people who are looking at that in that it makes the individual in the picture look isolated. And so part of the challenge here, uh, the second invisible uh, primary is building that fan club of, uh, of, of supporters and so on. So tell us a little bit about your views and your experience in terms of the importance of building that support base, that fan base uh, uh, behind a candidate even if it's for a local office, when it's not going to be as many people as in a presidential campaign, but it can't be zero. Sure. And let me tell you how they fit together. So when we talk about substance, we're talking about the message side of the campaign. And I always say if you, there's two parts of a campaign, essentially, which is the message side of the campaign, and the mechanical side of the campaign. Because an election is a, is a choice and people have to be uh, presented with a contrast and the candidate's job is to simply persuade voters, okay, and we'll talk about all these things because they're all in the invisible primary, they're persuading voters to do, a candidate only has basically one job, and that's to persuade. And they can persuade on three levels. They can persuade people to give more money to their campaign. They can persuade people to help the campaign, or they can persuade people to vote for the candidate themselves. That's it. That's their job. If they are, in fact, mired in the mechanical side of the campaign, that means they're in their garage or their basement stuffing Olympic licking envelopes, they're typing, they're, they're working their voter lists, uh, all those mechanical things. That is something that should be done by, by volunteers. Could also be paid, but it, it should be done by volunteers. And ironically, or not ironically, uh, fittingly, the whole substance of the message can- part of your campaign is what creates your fan club, right? The people who are actually volunteered. So when you have the right message to the right people, uh, their level of engagement from the voter, the voting would be the least level of engagement, I'm just gonna go vote. But the next level of engagement would be, I'm gonna you know, give money to the campaign. The next level of engagement is I'm gonna actually show up at the headquarters and ask to do things. That's the level of engagement that you want uh, your campaign to have. And you have to, it has to be a, a force multiplier. You have to get people so excited, they tell other people to come to the camp campaign and then they bring other people and more people and more people but you got to have things for them to do and they have to believe they're working for something that's important and so it's really it's really at the beginning of the campaign which is why we stress over and over is define yourself know know what your message is how to tell the story about yourself and that is what is going to lead to you getting two things um, money and help (laughs) candidates need to be champions for something sure Uh, and this in, in this is the area where when I've seen candidates who fail to come across as a champion, uh, they suffer the most in this area because people will volunteer and give their time, their energy, their effort to be part of a cause that is greater than their self-interest. But there has to be that cause that's greater than their self-interest. And if the candidate is just running to have an elected office and that cause is lacking, uh, then, they f- then they're less likely to attract That support base, that fan club, those people who are willing to spend time in the garage helping to stuff those envelopes, assemble those yard signs, put up a sign in their yard, uh, and so on. And that's vital. And then when it comes to the voter contact phase of the campaign later, and there aren't those people gathered around the candidate, then the candidate comes up short and you don't have an important resource needed to communicate with voters. 
No, it's absolutely it's absolutely right, and, and which is which is why this is done really in a in a in a critical path in an order and is defining yourself, getting the the candidate, uh, getting the enough people to make sure that you're off the message side of the campaign, mechanical side of the campaign, because every moment that you as a candidate are spending on the mechanical side of the campaign. And you should ask yourself, what am I doing right now? Is it message or is it mechanical? Now, if you're saying, oh, well, I'm writing a fundraising letter. Okay, now you, okay, you got me, all right? So you are on the message, but you're also on the mechanical. Um, I would rather have a volunteer. Anything a volunteer can do in place of you because the candidate is the single biggest resource for the campaign. It is their time it is their presence, it is their persuasion that is going to be most effective on the campaign. Um, unless you're just a terrible candidate, <laughs> then you might want to keep them away from voters. But in, in, for the most part, a candidate is the one who's going to close the sale. They're going to convince the most people uh, to vote for them. And so you've got to make sure that I have all the systems in place and a structure and an organization to organize people who feel good about that they're part of a mission. And it starts with listening. It just starts with, I'm running for school board. What do you think? And listen to what people are saying about it. And then uh, and invariably, you're going to come across people who say, you know what? What you just said is exactly why I'm running. And if you would help me, we will have that. Just what you described, that vision. That's my vision. We share a vision. And I'm running. If you will help me, we'll do this for our school board. And then people get excited and they feel like they're important. You know those people, Ron. Anybody who just who makes you feel important, indispensable, like, oh my goodness, you know, I love being around this person because they make me, they acknowledge me, they know my name, uh, they make me feel important, they make me feel like I have a mission, they make, like, make me feel like I'm having a difference. That's what candidate, that, by the way, what is that? What is the name of our organization? We're the Leadership Institute. That's what leadership is about, is how do you, you remember, you can't be a leader if you don't have followers, right? By definition, mm -hmm. right? you're just a lonely person. You're, you know, by definition, you're not a leader. You've got to create followers and followers uh, don't want to waste their time. They're busy, people are busy. Um, and for, in order for someone to give up their time, it has to be meaningful. It has to make them feel like they're really making a difference. And so you could do that as a candidate. So the candidate needs to be a champion for something, draw people uh, around them, people who will volunteer, put up yard signs, et cetera, et cetera. And the failure to do that results in, number one, the candidate having to do a lot of mechanical things themselves, which is, a, is, the, is not a good use of their time. Uh, having people who will help out and take care of some of those mechanical functions frees up the candidate to spend their time on the things that only the candidate can do or where the candidate can have the most impact. And that's asking people to, for their time to volunteer, asking people to support the campaign financially, uh, and, uh, and asking voters uh, to support the candidate. And, uh, and only the candidate is the strongest person, the candidate's the strongest person to do uh, those things. And then also, uh, when you have a whole bunch of people who are willing to put a sign up in their yard, uh, there's power in that as well, uh, of course. I, I've, I've come to believe that yard signs are more powerful when they are in someone's yard than when they are in the freeway right of way or you know somewhere where it's probably not legal to put them anyway, but putting that aside for the moment, when there's some random sign in front of an empty lot, uh, that sign is contributing to the candidate's name ID, but it's not contributing to the reassurance that comes when a voter has a, a voter has decided I'm going to put that sign in my yard and I'm going to show my neighbors that I endorse and I, I back that candidate. Yeah, that's absolutely important. Um, and because when people drive by, they say, oh, Ron is supporting, you know, candidate X. That I respect Ron's opinion. I wonder why he's supporting that. I'm, I'm going to give him a call and, and find out why exactly he's supporting that, that candidate. And so that has a, a much greater impact than, as you say, just a sign just uh, stuck stuck anywhere. Um, in, in some states, like, you know, where my father-in-law used to live in Worcester, the Democrats overnight would literally pound signs in everybody's yard overnight. And of course, some people like my, like my father-in-law would, of course, take the sign and throw it away because he was not a Democrat. Um, but most people kept those signs up. <laughs> It was just, it's just the way they deployed. What what planet is this? It's amazing, uh, right? The they People's just, Democratic Republic of yeah, Massachusetts. They just, they just threw it. Uh, they just did. They would cover a whole neighborhood, 
and they would just assume everybody's a Democrat and they would just put all the signs out and the ones that didn't, then they didn't, but they'd still have the neighborhood covered. Let me say this about signs, and, and it, you're right, it is, it is a way to get name ID. Having the most signs won't win your campaign, but it is part of, of everything else. So, uh, you know, you can look at all aspects of the campaign from how many endorsements. Do the most endorsements win? No. Are they important? They can be. Um, do the most signs win? Not necessarily, but are they good for the Probably. Does, does the most money win a campaign? Not always, but is it important? Absolutely. But it's all these things that work together that create a winning campaign. Because I'll tell you, the campaign that has the most volunteers probably is raising the most money. The candidate that has the most volunteers more than likely has the most amount of signs, right? Because you have an organization mm-hmm. to get, get them out. The candidate that has the most volunteers is most likely making the most voter contact, either by door-to-door or by phone calls. Um, the candidate that has the most endorsements is probably um, all the other things are just are, is probably getting the most positive press. They all work in tandem. So it's not that you, there is no there's often there's almost always exclusively no silver bullets in politics. There are that it has happened. Um, but generally, if your campaign is doing all the right things, all the right things are working well together. Yeah, there is no I, I think you're, you're spot on in that candidates who might believe, well, I'm just going to put up one trillion yard signs and I'm going to win, or I'm going to you know, invest a lot of money in television ads for a school board campaign, and that, that that's going to win. Rarely does that wind up being successful because you need to communicate with voters through multiple channels. And, and it's not only how frequently you're communicating with them, but you have to be selling something that people are willing to buy. And that is the content has to be strong as well. That's absolutely correct. And when you have sticking with a fan club theme is is fans have their own networks, their own social media networks. They have their own neighbors and family. Um, they're talking to they're a third party endorsement. The, the key for candidates is to make sure all your fans, all your supporters are able to articulate what your vision is and what, is, what it's about and be able to be persuasive. Because people will get involved for campaigns for all kinds of reasons. Because my son's working for the campaign, or a friend of mine's working for the campaign. I don't really wasn't really interested in this school board campaign, but all of a sudden my my son's working on the campaign. Now I've kind of gotten really interested in it, and then I'm telling my friends about it, and they'll be calling and say, "Who's your son working for? Oh, she's working for Mary Evans, and Mary Evans is working. Oh, or I'll look at Mary. Maybe I'll vote for her. You know." My friend's son's working on that campaign, right? That, the people get involved for all kinds of reasons. So the more that you have, the more likely that you'll actually have somebody who's making direct uh, voter con- contact making the case for your candidacy. So the the, uh, the the picture of the California candidate who I mentioned earlier, who's always appearing alone in, in his pictures, uh, brings to mind what the third invisible primary is, and that is endorsements. Uh, and that is it's important for candidates to demonstrate that they're not alone in this, that there are people supporting them, backing them. Uh, but having endorsements from people in the community who have their own networks, who are in positions of leadership and influence is important for a, a candidate, particularly a first time candidate. So let's talk about that. So endorsements can be in, important because, again, it's part of the, the, the puzzle that makes for a successful campaign. If you get an endorsement, even from an important person, and they just put out a statement, that's not really very valuable, actually. What you want is an endorser who is willing to not only put out a statement to say, I I support the candidate, but is willing to do an event with you and to introduce you and to articulate in person why they're supporting you, that they will uh, allow you to plug into their networks, because usually an endorsed person is either a another elected official or they or they are the reason endorsement is important because they have a network of people and, and are they going to actually communicate to those people are they going to help you raise money are they going to let you write to their fundraising list candidates don't generally give other candidates their fundraising list but they might write on behalf to their list on behalf of another candidate the reason i'm supporting mary is because xyz and i was urge you to do that as well and you can show your support you know, by sending a $25 check today, and here's where you send it. So endorsements are great if they turn, if they allow you to uh, access their assets and put them to work for your campaign. If it's just a statement, sure, we'll take it, but it's not really worth very much. I have found that 
when a candidate is unknown that you're looking to so if you're unknown in the community you don't have existing credibility in the community because you're unknown and so people who are endorsing the candidate are lending their credibility to the candidate sure uh, they are uh, so when your neighbor puts a yard sign up in in their yard uh, it uh, that is conferring the credibility of the neighbor to the candidate and while that one neighbor may not be tremendously influential when you see a thousand neighbors have done so because you're driving through the community and you're recognizing the signs uh, that conveys some power uh, and quantity uh, does have an impact there uh, as well. There was a, a, a defense analyst in the 1970 during the Cold War, an American defense analyst when looking at the Soviet Union, uh, the Soviet Union, for those of you who, who, uh, who may know, uh, the Soviet Union during the Cold War uh, didn't produce the greatest quality weaponry, but they produced a lot of them. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and this defense analyst said that uh, observed that quantity has a quality all its own. Uh, and so uh, it, it does make a difference if you have a hundred yard signs up in a community versus ten. Uh, that make that has an impact because that's a lot of people conferring their credibility onto the candidate. Uh, and then I'm just using signs as an example, but there is this lending of credibility when and when someone comes on and endorses a candidate uh, that is taking place. And when the person doing the endorsement has a network and is willing to activate that network through some action, then there's real power in that. Speaking of lending, it reminds me of a candidate I knew who was actually a banker in northern Maine. And these are very small communities in northern Maine. And he just knew a lot of people because he was a business businessman and he just knew um, just a lot of people in the community and what would happen is his opponent would go out and and do door knocking and ask you know to put up signs and, and he'd always get his campaign would always get the intelligence of where the opposition was walking that day and then he would go through his list of that neighborhood call all his friends and they'd put out their signs the very next day <laughs> the the opposition got so demoralized over the fact that every time their candidate walked a neighborhood it seems like the the opposition signs went up <laughs> overnight and so they they abandoned their door, door walking campaign <laughs> so, but but you make an important point it is when we're when we are running, we're seeking to um, borrow, to use another banking term, uh, the credibility of of other people to help uh, persuade voters to support us as well. So, so it seems to me that some of the people whose endorsements might be valuable might be uh, an existing school board member, uh, people former school board members, local elected officials, people with uh, who are connected to the school, parent groups. Uh, individual parents, uh, et cetera, people from the Chamber of Commerce, uh, et cetera. These are- The hairstylist, the barber, the um, hardware store owner, um, the restaurant owner, anywhere where people kind of know everybody. That's Those are really important nodes to uh, get endorsements from. Yeah. And likewise, uh, if, you know, you, you mentioned the barber, if- if the barbershop owner is willing to put your sign in their window, number one, it's again conferring the credibility of that barber to uh, to the uh, to the candidate. But then, every single person who's walking into that into that barbershop is being left with that impression, and it's that repetition of voter contact that winds up being important as well. Yeah. The uh, so the, a perfect day for a campaign would be, you know, you're a voter and you wake up and you're clock radio. They used to have clock radios. <laughs> Your iPhone goes off and you suddenly you hear like an advertisement about a campaign. And then you pick up the morning newspaper off the stoop and there's a little article about, you know, the, your, the candidacy. And then you're driving to work and you put on talk radio and, uh, you know, Mike, the candidate is on the air talking to the local radio host. Uh, you get to work and uh, that the water cooler, you know, one of your buddies at work says, you know, I'm working on that campaign. And I hear a lot of good things. And then they come home and they, they, they turn on the local news and, oh, there's the candidate again in, in an interview about their campaign. And so, like, that's never going to happen. But I mean, but in a single day. But what happens is if the candidate is disciplined and on message, they'll actually have the same message through many different vehicles over and over again. And in the voter's mind, they, they begin to put it together. The first, they don't really hear the message. And the second time they say, well, that sounds familiar. And then the third time they say, hmm, that sounds familiar. It's probably true. And by the fourth and fifth time they hear it, it's like, 
That's got to be true because everybody's saying it. And everybody is saying it, but it's all directed from the campaign. That's called message discipline. So it's coming not only from the candidate, it's coming from uh, news reports, it's coming from you know your logo, your bumper sticker, whatever you have that just reinforces that same message of change of what your candidacy is about. So that it really drives into the voters' men, mind what, what the driving force uh, of your campaign is. This brings to mind the importance of having a theme to the campaign yes. and a command yeah. focus. Yes. A command focus in a campaign, or many definitions, my definition of it is a command focus is what is this campaign about and beyond just electing the candidate. Of course, it's about electing the candidate, but every campaign is about that. But what are we trying to accomplish? What are those of us who've been brought together, the candidate, the volunteers, the supporters, the donors, et cetera, parents supporting this candidate? What is it that we are trying to accomplish? And that's something which has to be that this command focus needs to be well-developed and well-understood internally, which sometimes it's not in a campaign, and you can tell when it's not. And it has it, it, the reason it has to be so internally understood is that it then radiates outward when the campaign communicates. And it's then reflected in every, when everything that the candidate does, the mail, the, the signage, et cetera, that all reflects in some way uh, is anchored in this common theme, this command focus of the campaign. And that's where you, get, you generate coherence in the mind of the voter because they are, they are getting p- pieces of this command focus through the various means of voter contact that they're exposed to. Let me give you an example of why this is so important and how it actually played out in history. George H.W. Bush, who was a war hero, uh, came in, into office, and many, many things happened under his uh, four years, uh, including the collapse of the Soviet Union, the reunification of Germany, uh, a huge Middle East peace conference um, that involved all the Arab states, Israel, and the Palestinians. This was no small achievement. In a way, they were victims of their own success. All of these things had happened very successfully, and and people were very positive about it. Oh, the hundred days. I forgot to mention the hundred days it took to kick Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. Uh, poll, uh, polls show that uh, Bush enjoyed, I think, an 86% approval rating, like unheard of in modern polling time, like that had never happened before. So much so, uh, all the top-tier Democratic candidates uh, like Mario Cuomo um, had decided to sit out the election, and we ended up uh, getting uh, uh, the principal candidate was was Bill Clinton, who went, went on to win. Because after all of these epic events had happened and they had failed to kind of capture it. And Americans kind of got a little complacent. The economy then suddenly turned and it got very negative. There was a recession and the administration was slow to acknowledge the recession and they couldn't turn what they had accomplished and what was happening now with the recession into a vision of what a world would look like um, and it was the, there was no theme of the campaign. There was no vision of the campaign. There was no coherent message to the campaign. And the Clinton team had a very coherent message, which was basically, it's the economy, stupid. Uh, And they were just focused like a laser on that one thing. And you also had a a candidate in Bill Clinton who happened to be, in terms of political skills, he had very high political skills. may not like his policies, but he had high political skills. And they ended up losing a remarkable turn from the beginning of the Bush administration. All the amazing things that happened to it could not be turned into a victory because of lack of focus when it came time to make a case for re-election. I think uh, the Dole campaign in 1996 suffered from some of that uh, as well. It wasn't really clear uh, what uh, the command focus of that campaign was. I remember uh, because I was the— I know what they wanted it to be. They wanted it to be a ten percent across the board tax cut. It, I the, think it was, I think it was fifteen percent. Okay, but the problem was Dole. Yeah. Like if you had followed Dole's career to that point, he had railed against uh, across not, the board. Right, tax he wasn't cuts. a tax cutter. He was a he was a, a deficit hawk. That was just who he was. But he didn't. His team wanted him to be a tax cutter. He ran on tax cutting. His heart wasn't in it, which is a very important thing. It's like a candidate actually has to believe what what they're advocating in front of the public. 
uh, or not only does he not believe it, how do you expect the voters to believe it? You know, it reminds me of, um, uh, so in 1996, by sheer somewhat coincidence, uh, the Republican National Convention was held in San Diego, and I was 26 years old, and I was the executive director of the Republican Party of San Diego County at the time. Uh, and uh, and so it was pretty exciting to have, have be the host county yes. for the Republican National Convention. But Bob Dole and Jack Kemp that year were running on this uh, 15% tax cut. And I remember very distinctly that at a rally, they were handing out these, these round signs that said 15%. And I use that as, as an example in some of my lectures here at Leadership Institute because it stands in contrast to what the German poet Goethe said, which is, dream no small dreams, for they have no power to move the hearts of men. And what this speaks to is when someone sees 15% is a small number. You know, are you going to get excited about a 15% cut in your federal taxes that some politician is promising you? Eh, maybe. maybe. But it's not, that is not a big, bold vision uh, at all. It's a, rel- it's a comparatively small number. And by running on that 15% number, uh, it, it actually made the, the, the scale of what he was proposing smaller rather than rather than bigger. This does not mean that a candidate's vision should be, you know, utopian and unachievable and, uh, you know, purely a fantasy. But it does need to be aspirational. It does need to be big enough to get people's attention. Uh, and uh, and that goes a little bit back to the the vision and substance uh, part of our part of our list here. Let me move on to the the fourth category, and that is money. Um, Tom Schultz, who has served as a faculty member and staff member here at Leadership Institute, I remember Tom sharing with me um, uh, a lesson that he learned, which is that when you find a candidate who says, we're not going to need to raise any money because we're going to run a grassroots campaign, his advice was to run away from that candidate as fast as possible because even the most grassroots campaign that has no paid staff, et cetera, still needs to have resources to give to the volunteers so they can do their job. The signs, the handouts, the you know donuts on Saturday morning before the precinct walk and so on. So every campaign, even a very grassroots campaign, still needs to raise money in order to support uh, the mission of, of winning. Uh, that is absolutely true. And it's absolutely true. It depends on, on different races. The higher up you go, obviously, the more important it becomes because you have uh, bigger voter bases. And school board districts are going to be they're going to they're going to vary all over the all over the place. Um, and the candidate who says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to have a grassroots campaign. I'm not going to raise money usually is going to miss out on the advertising that would come in the final two, three weeks of the campaign. Now, it could be television advertising, which is unlikely, but it can happen. Um, radio advertising flyers, direct mail, even the flyers that the volunteers hand out. You've got to have a budget for that because what will happen is your opponent will have that money and they will be doing all those things. And the, to, from the voter's perspective, that comes, that's where the momentum is coming because most people will not pay attention to a campaign really until they think, oh, got an election coming up. Boy, I really better start paying attention. And so they do start paying attention and they happen to be paying attention at the very time you're putting together your paid media strategy. And you will not, I don't care how many volunteers you have, and I want you to have as many as possible. You will have, you will not have enough volunteers to overwhelm a paid media campaign. And it will look like your opponent is everywhere and doing everything exactly when it matters. And it will look like you died. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so don't right. neglect the paid part of the campaign and again it's a part of the puzzle you don't, you don't have to have the most money but you got to have you got to have an adequate adequate resources all we get in the campaign is time money people and ideas time is limited money can be limited people are your most um, you can have as many people as you want and you know what people bring ideas and they bring lots of ideas if you are uh, in the habit of listening Steve Sutton, our senior vice president at the Leadership Institute, recorded an earlier podcast, episode three, talking about raising money. And he really walked through a terrific mechanism by which candidates for local government office uh, can raise money for their campaign. I recommend that that you go back and uh, listen to episode three. Also, Steve recorded a full lecture on fundraising for the school board campaign program. 
But those are the four invisible primaries, substance, building the fan club, endorsements, and then having the money to power the campaign uh, to victory. Uh, Rick, what closing piece of advice do you have for people who are listening who might be either running for school board or helping a candidate out? I hope that our conversation has led people to have this challenge unlocked for them, that it seems daunting, like, how am I going to do all these things? But if you really break it down and understand each of the components, how am I going to define myself? What's my narrative? What's my message? How am I going to attract people to my campaign? How am I going to get endorsements? And how am I going to raise uh, some amount of money? When you take those four separately and, and, and be working on each one of them, uh, individually, uh, you can really get your head around it and you can be successful. And this is how successful campaigns are put together. So like a recipe, just follow the recipe and put your own self into it and you'll do really well. Yeah, agree. This wraps up another episode of the Leadership Institute School Board Campaign Training Podcast. The Leadership Institute is a nonprofit, nonpartisan foundation dedicated to giving conservatives the tools they need to fight and win in the public policy arena. If you'd like to support our work, you can make a tax-deductible contribution online at leadershipinstitute.org slash donate. Rick, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ron. I'm your host, Ron Nearing. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.